This is the Gender Justice Brief, a podcast of gender justice. We fight for gender equity by breaking down legal, structural, and cultural barriers and expanding protections. We want to see all people thrive, regardless of their gender, gender expression, and sexual orientation. Good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for coming to hear more about our path forward in the Dakotas. My name is Erin May Quaid. I use she, her pronouns. I am the Special Projects Advisor at Gender Justice. Joining me this evening are two of my esteemed colleagues. Brittany, I'll come to you first. Please introduce yourselves. Hi, everybody. I'm Brittany Stewart, and I'm a senior staff attorney here at Gender Justice. I'm the consul on our page here in the talking about this evening. Thanks, Brittany. Christina, over to you. Good evening, everyone. Thanks for joining us. I am Christina Sanborn. I'm the North Dakota State Director for Gender Justice based in Bismarck, licensed attorney, and excited to chat with everybody tonight. Wonderful. So tonight, what we're going to talk a little bit about is gender justice, what we do, why we do it, how we do it, and then talk a little bit about how we're bringing our proof of concept model into the Dakotas and why we're doing that. Um, Christina is going to talk a little bit about what's happening in North Dakota. And then um, Brittany's going to talk about some of the legal work that we're doing there. So I am going to share my screen, which is still to this day terrifying to do, even though we've been through the COVID times together. All right. Gender Justice is a legal and policy advocacy nonprofit dedicated to advancing gender equity through the law. And we envision a world where all people can thrive regardless of their gender expression, sexual orientation. And we do the work to advance this mission by dismantling legal, structural, and cultural barriers. This picture you're seeing right here is the day we filed our litigation against the state of Minnesota. That is why I look so triumphant. I don't regularly pose like that in photos. We do our work with these core tactics, legal analysis, civil rights litigation, policy advocacy, narrative change of public education, and partnership and coalition building. And you see here some pictures of our wonderful coalitions that we've been part of. Just a brief history. This is not all-encompassing. We have done a lot of work since we were founded in 2010, but just a brief history. We were founded in 2010 by two plaintiff's attorneys, Lisa Stratton and Jill Galding. They wanted to do gender equity work at their white shoe law firms. They weren't able to, so they cashed in their 401ks and started a legal nonprofit. 2014, Gender Justice was instrumental to uh, both writing and helping get passed the Women's Economic Security Act here in the state of Minnesota. In 2015, we won our case, the Rumble case, which established that trans people are covered under Section 15 of the Affordable Care Act, which is the anti-discrimination section of the Affordable Care Act. 17, we settled a case on behalf of a trans kindergartner who is now a trans middle schooler and thriving, who was discriminated against at her private school. In 2019, we filed big cases on behalf of two transgender students, and these cases helped establish in Minnesota the both the constitutional protections and the Minnesota Human Rights Act protections to protect trans students from discrimination in schools. In 2021, we filed Cooper v. USA Powerlifting, where we filed on behalf of our client, J.C. Cooper, who's a trans woman who was banned from, by USA Powerlifting from um, competing. In 2022, big year, we won Doe v. Minnesota, which was the litigation I was triumphantly posing for, which struck down almost all of Minnesota's abortion restrictions, saying they were unconstitutional. Also that year, we won a case with the National Labor Relations Board that ensured transgender employees have the right to put their pronouns on their name badges. 2023, we're not done, but so far this year, 
We've had major wins for our trans clients, including Christina Lusk, who is a trans woman who was being incorrectly held at a men's prison and being denied gender-affirming care. We won the Cooper case um, against USA Powerlifting, and we had a really strong legislative session where we were able to completely de decriminalize abortion and pass the Trans Refuge Act, as well as advocate for a number of other policies to be put into place. Um, so I am going to turn it over. Oh, actually, let me, before I do that, this work that we have done, Gender Justice has done, um, we do it in partnership with movement partners. We do the litigation work and we have an amazing legal team of which Christina and Brittany are part of it. But we have done this as a whole, um, including advocacy, narrative public change work as well. And so um, as we move into uh, the Dakotas, we're not moving in there legally. We have uh, done litigation in the States, but we are moving our entire operation, the way we do our work, our entire model into the Dakota. And I want to tell you a little bit about why. Once he started getting because right wing, the right wing movement has used states like North and South Dakota as labs for testing out strategies that are then deployed across the country. And gender justice is working to halt the right wing movement's momentum against gender equity, which is tied up with our defense of democracy. And we're doing that by executing litigation, research, communications, organizing, and movement building strategies in the Dakotas. And we're going to enjoin discriminatory gender-based laws and practices, increase support of trans and LGBT rights, reproductive rights, and gender equity. And almost as important as both of those things, increase the legal capacity in Dakotas around gender equity. And so I'm going to turn it over to our North Dakota State Director to um, talk a little bit about what the landscape in North Dakota has been like and, and how we've arrived where we are. So, Christina, I will turn it over to you. I'll also just note, folks, if you have questions, feel free to pop them in the Q&A or into the chat. There will be extensive time for Q&A and feel free to just keep those rolling in throughout. Christina. Thanks, Erin. If you go to the next slide. Okay. So a little bit of what I'm going to go through this evening with everyone is a bit of the legal background in recent litigation and current litigation that gender justice is engaged in in North Dakota, and then also some recent legislative history. As those of you who are in North Dakota know, and likely many of you in Minnesota as well, or in other parts of the country, um, North Dakota is a lightly populated state and has a significant rural population. We also, Erin was in prepping for this, telling me that North Dakota has the highest percentage of working mothers of any state in the U.S. Sometimes I think we look at places like North Dakota and feel like some of these issues and ways they affect people based on gender-based discrimination um, can feel out of reach, but they're really not. And we're not impacted any differently than and impacted even more when we have a really high percentage of working mothers and lack a lot of public policy discourse and fundamental protection that would benefit people in North Dakota. So I'm going to talk today primarily about a lot of the bills that have been passed in the area of restricting transgender rights, but it is important to know and we'll highlight in these first couple of cases that gender justice's work touches across the gender spectrum. And so we have been involved in securing rights and in and protecting rights in lots of different areas. Recently, we put out a, a briefing on pumping and pregnancy rights in Minnesota under Minnesota law. And so we look forward to creating content like that for North Dakota so that we can understand what our rights are across the various issues that gender justice works on and areas where we can start to collaborate with so many wonderful partners in the state that have been doing really good, important work to hopefully move the bar in lots of areas, because we know we can do better. We know that 
a lot of people in North Dakota feel very differently about these rights than maybe following our state legislature would lead one to believe. And so we really believe that we've got a really solid middle of people here that we can motivate to do better on behalf of people of all genders in our state. Last fall, the EEOC prosecuted a case against 40 Steak and Seafood, which is a business that owns several restaurants in the Bismarck Mandate area. An employee was terminated and uh, the EEOC took over prosecution of the case, which is no small matter. Typically, when that happens, it's because there's very clear evidence of discrimination and the EEOC sees an overall societal interest in taking on the case, not leaving a plaintiff necessarily to rely on their own counsel, but to have also the resources and expertise of the EEOC behind them. And so Gender Justice took this case on back in, I believe, 2015, 2016. Um, the case went on for nearly seven years, and it resulted in going to tr a jury trial uh, last fall um, before the federal court in Bismarck. And despite what we saw as overwhelming evidence, the jury basically made a finding that the person, yes, was terminated, but that there was no evidence of pregnancy discrimination. And really, when you looked at the evidence offered in the case, there was some contemporaneous text messages from management that indicated that they had told the other employees that the person was in fact being let go because of their status as a pregnant person. And so I think that case was difficult for a lot of us to see what happened, but also really on the cusp of gender justice, becoming more involved in North Dakota highlighted just how much work there is to do here. And I'm sure that's no secret to our attendees on the webinar. Currently, we have another lawsuit um, going on, Access Independent versus Wrigley et al., the original case was filed um, by the Center for Reproductive Rights and challenged North Dakota's trigger ban. So when Roe v. Wade was overturned, North Dakota was one of the states that had what's called a trigger law, where if and when that federal precedent went away, a law more or less immediately went into effect that banned almost all abortions. So initially, that law was challenged in this suit and very successfully when the court entered a, a temporary pause on the law, which we call a temporary restraining order or preliminary injunction, where the court said, essentially, the plaintiffs have such a high likelihood of success in this case, and it's likely that the law is, in fact, unconstitutional. It's an unconstitutional restriction on people's reproductive rights that we are going to prevent it from going into effect while this case is pending and then take up the ultimate issue of whether or not it would be permanently enjoined. Since that lawsuit's been filed, this North Dakota legislature met in 2013 and passed a new law, which was Senate Bill 2150, codified in the North Dakota Century Code at 12.119.1. And essentially, <clears throat> some of the position of many of the advocates, doctors, people who came in and spoke to the legislature about this case was the Supreme Court has laid out some pretty clear guide rails as to what they consider protected which is that people are, 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 are entitled to access reproductive care, such as abortion, when their health is threatened. And the law that was passed by the legislature made very minimal changes, really, to what the trigger ban ultimately did. And so at this point, the law is, or the lawsuit is continuing and now applies to that new law. So gender justice is one of the entities that is attorneys of record and are challenging the new abortion law. If we could go to the next slide. So. The next portion I just want to review with everyone is a bit of background in terms of recent legislation. So what I've done is grouped some of the legislation that was passed during the 2013 legislative session 
by their effect or their focus. House Bills 1139, 1297, and 1474 were three bills that collectively really took aim at a trans person's ability to have their gender recognized by the state. And those bills did that by saying that a person's gender must be consistent with and identified by their sex as assigned at birth, with very limited exceptions. Those exceptions would include cases in which someone's sex may not be clear due to their anatomical makeup, but still that the law requires that a decision be made as to what sex or gender is going to be assigned to the person. And then how the bills work together was saying we have to definitively establish the person's sex and then your vital records cannot be changed after that point for the purpose of a gender transition. So effectively, what that did was eliminate a person's ability to change their gender marker, their gender identifier in their vital records. And the legislature went further than that and went ahead to prohibit data collection that would recognize a gender that differs from sex assigned at birth. For example, if there's state research, state-sponsored research that's going on, and a component of that would require looking at trans people as a subset, theoretically, that would this law would prohibit the state from acknowledging that sect of people exist. And so because these laws are new, they haven't been legally challenged yet, but you can see just how really devastating that is to set as a policy that we don't acknowledge trans people as trans people and we will not recognize their gender. House Concurrent Resolution 3010, concurrent resolutions are really just a philosophical statement, if you will. And this one's really infuriating to read. They describe women as being the only sex that can basically reproduce and then that men are basically the sex that are known to be stronger and less vulnerable. And therefore, because of those facts, that the legislature as a state, as setting policy and an opinion for the state, urges public entities to quote unquote, protect women's rights by only distinguishing between sexes according to sex as assigned at birth. So really trying to take this issue of discrimination against trans people and couch it in terms of protecting women's rights. Um, the next sort of grouping was House Bill 1249 and 1489, and these were the sports bills. So what these bills did is restrict sports participation by sexes assigned at birth for both K through 12 athletics and collegiate activities. And this ban applies not only to competitive, but also to intramural sports. So again, this idea that there should be or that there is some public policy interest in a wholesale ban on anyone who is transgender participating in even intramural activities in a way that's consistent with their gender identity. House Bills 1473 and 15 even touched on accommodations available to trans people and also to preferred pronoun use and policy. So these bills segregate trans people from using restrooms, locker rooms, or showers in prisons, colleges, and schools based upon their gender identity. So essentially prohibiting a trans, uh, a 12-year-old trans boy from using the boy's bathroom, even if that trans boy is passing, nobody at school knows that they're trans. Everyone, for all intents and purposes, views this no differently than any other cis boy in school. But these laws now require that schools make accommodations, so to speak. And what we see, what we're seeing as a result, and this happens in Minnesota as well, um, however, they have laws that they can challenge these these decisions under at the state level is that kids are made to go to like administrative bathrooms or some other bathroom, which often is very obvious, right, that they would only be using that bathroom because these laws apply to them. And then in terms of the pronoun policies, 
these laws prohibit schools from setting pronoun policies, i.e. they cannot require nor prohibit use of preferred pronouns, and that public schools may not withhold information on a trans student from their parents. So again, a lot of really vague language. Um, When you dig into the actual letter of the law, you'd think that maybe there would be some specificity here about what things mean. There isn't. And we are very much of the opinion that is intentional in drafting these bills, which is that it gives an impression that there is maybe more consideration of the trans person's needs than really happens as a result, because not only do these laws impact the rights they touch on, but they also, we see time and time again, create what's called a chilling effect, which means that the schools, the the doctors, whoever that are reading these laws read them, and then they're inclined to read them as broadly as possible and to avoid doing anything that runs afoul of these laws. So then you have actors potentially enforcing an even more strict law than the law really requires. And then the last one um, that I'll highlight and then transition over to Brittany to talk a little bit more about is House Bill 1254. This law is the subject of our new lawsuit that we filed on September 14th that bans provision of gender-affirming care to minors. This law prohibits both the administration of medication and of hormones. And when we say medication, that means puberty blockers. And so these are drugs that work on the body to prevent the process of puberty from happening. And that those are medications that are administered to people for various reasons, not just to prevent someone from going through puberty when their gender identity is different than their sex at birth. But the law only prohibits use of the puberty blockers when it's for the purpose of treating gender dysphoria in transgender youth. So these same treatments that are outlawed for trans youth remain available for youth that need it for some other reason. And Brittany will talk a little bit more about what that looks like. It also prohibits uh, gender surgery on um, genitalia, which doesn't happen in North Dakota. So it's really, its presence there suggests that it's something that happens and, and I think is used to to amplify the scare tactic aspect of a lot of these laws because surgeries are not happening like that in North Dakota and they're very rare in general. This law carries misdemeanor felony penalties for doctors. So we're talking about pediatric endocrinologists who have obligations under their medical ethics and their Hippocratic oath to do no harm. But now the state is telling them, look, this treatment that is well-established, is well-regulated, is unavailable for these people. And if you provide this care, which our doctor plaintiff talks about as clearly being the standard of care for individuals, now you're running afoul of state law and committing a crime. Uh, Lastly, in House Bill 1254, there's a legacy clause. And again, Brittany will touch a little bit more on what kind of what the issue is there and how we're challenging that. So at this point, I'm going to turn it over to our senior staff attorney, Brittany Stewart, and she's going to walk you through the lawsuit that has been filed challenging House Bill 1254. Thanks, Christina. I'm going to share my screen. Okay. The lawsuit we filed on September 14th, challenging HB 1254, the gender affirming care ban, was it's TD et al. versus Wrigley et al. TD is Tate Dolly. He's a 12 year old trans boy, and his parents are also part of the suit. We filed in Burley County in the state court in Bismarck. And our plaintiffs are three transgender kids, including Tate, as well as two others who are proceeding anonymously and and their families. 
So the Dolneys were with us at the press conference to announce this lawsuit. And I believe, Aaron Mayquay, you have a clip to play us of Kate and that press conference, yeah? Yeah. Once he started getting the support and healthcare that he needed to live his life as who he truly is, he's been an entirely different kid. He went from hiding in his room and refusing to spend time with anyone to playing with his brother and his friends again and getting involved in activities. He hides in his room now, but that's, that's preteen stuff. We were all there. No worse, yeah, no worse than any other preteen. That was Tate and his parents. And he didn't make a joke that this isn't something that he wanted to be doing. He would literally rather be doing anything else, even homework, than having to file this litigation. Yeah, so the Dolneys are a family in Fargo. And then we have the Doe family who are in Stark County, which is to the west of the Bismarck area. And then the Rowe family, who are located in Burley County, where we filed. The Doe family, they have 12-year-old transgender boy, just like Tate. And the Rowe family has a 15-year-old transgender girl. These families, due to the atmosphere surrounding trans status right now and all these laws that Christina talked about, these folks were a little bit scared to put their names out there on this lawsuit and to potentially get hate from their neighbors and people around the state or being even held up by like the Tucker Carlson for the world and picked on in the media. So they wanted to proceed anonymously. In fact, our 15-year-old girl, she just started at a new school this year where her classmates don't know about her trans status, and she's just trying to go about living her life. That's the kind of people we're talking about. These are just regular kids in regular families around North Dakota that just want to have access to the treatment that everyone else has. Then we also have Dr. Luis Casas, who is our pediatric endocrinologist, plaintiff. He's actually been the the doctor for our three plaintiff families. And she actually, the pediatric endocrinology is such a limited specialty already. His practice actually takes him around the state of North Dakota to various offices around the state. And he has one office in Moorhead, Minnesota, that he's in two, day, two days per month. And now that this law has been passed and, and come into effect, our plaintiff families can now only see him in that Moorhead, Minnesota office. For example, for the Doe family in Stark County, they have an over seven hour round trip to, to see their doctor on what's ostensibly a 15 to 20 minute patient visit. So now they have to take a whole day off of work whole day off of school, spend who knows how much on gas getting back and forth just to get to a short appointment that they used to be able to access closer to home when Dr. Casas was in one of the offices closer to their home. And this even affects the Dolneys who are in Fargo and only have to go across the river because now they're limited to do two days per month. Dr. Casas is available for them as well. And beyond that, if any of these families even has a question about the medic, got a side effect, 
they have to call or email Dr. Costa's office and wait till the or his staff are in the Morad, Minnesota office for them to even reply to that message because the doctors are so scared of the criminal liability in this law that they don't even want to respond to a message about it while they're in North Dakota. So what we're doing is asking the court to declare the health care ban unconstitutional. And we're doing that based on the North Dakota Constitution, not the U.S. Constitution. And part of the reason we're pursuing this in state court, for one, you've seen the makeup of the U.S. Supreme Court right now. It's not exactly the best for some of our issues. And states are allowed to have more protection for civil rights than the federal government, but they can't have less protection. And what we have found is that in the case law in North Dakota, the North Dakota Supreme Court has said over and over again that the rights found in their constitution are to be construed liberally and generally and broadly, which is very different than what the U.S. Supreme Court recently said in Dobbs when they overturned Roe v. Wade, and they said that rights are to be very narrowly defined. It's the right to an abortion after X number of weeks rather than the right to reproductive freedom generally. So in North Dakota, they say, no, our rights are the more broad look. We look at them more broadly, not really narrowly. And so rather than us having to make an argument that Parents have a right to gender-affirming health care for their kids. Our argument is parents have a fundamental right to direct the health care of their kids. And that's what the North Dakota courts have said time and time again in other cases. Next slide. There we go. Okay, so our basic claims in the lawsuit are that the health care ban is unconstitutional because first, as I was just talking about, it infringes on the fundamental rights of parents to direct the medical care of their children. Second, it signals that transgender kids are unequal treatment under the law. And just the U.S. Constitution, North Dakota's Constitution also has an equal protection clause that requires that laws be applied to people equally. So we're arguing that by singling out transgender kids, they're violating that. And finally, it prohibits doctors from providing best practice medical care. As Christina said, our doctor is being told, too bad for your oath that you're going to do no harm. We've decided that this care isn't available and you're going to have to watch your patients be on. And the vague legacy flaws. So this came up, Christina mentioned it. So during the legislative session, there was some discussion among legislators about, should this law go into effect? Do we want to just suddenly allow people to have care they were already receiving ripped away with no warning? And so they put in this clause that says that if the performance or administration of the medical procedure on the minor began before the effective date, then that then the law doesn't apply to that. Now, the problem is nowhere in the law do they define the term medical procedure. And so for our doctors, they look at that wording and say a medical procedure, if somebody is literally like under the knife 
And as the law goes into effect, I can finish this procedure. Or if I stuff the syringe in to give my client a shot, but 12 at 11.59 and the law goes into effect at 12 o'clock, I can keep doing that shot. The problem is that it's unclear whether this means I was giving this client, this patient, a shot every three months, a month before the ban went into effect. But now two months after it went into effect, even though it's the same medication, is this a new procedure? Because now it's a second shot. So just to be safe because of those criminal liabilities of misdemeanor and felony potential criminal charges, our doctors feel like we just can't provide this care. And so the legacy clause has not been anything to protect the care for kids who are already getting it. The care just stopped the day the law went into effect. And the only people who can now access that are those people who can spend the time and money to go over to a neighboring state like Minnesota to then access that care. Now, I'm not going to try to get too in the legal weeds, but I did want you to see a little bit about the North Dakota Constitution. So this is the Equal Protection Clause as it is in the North Dakota Constitution. And in our case, we're saying, look, these puberty blockers and hormone treatments, they are available to all kids for any other reason, even if it's to gender affirm, as long as it's a cisgender kid, but it's not available for the exact same reason if it's for a transgender kid. For example, if a boy who is cisgender and has what's called gynecomastia, where maybe his breasts are developing more femininely, a doctor can prescribe him testosterone shots, and that's fine. And it's affirming him as a male, making sure he doesn't develop female secondary sex characteristics that cause him some kind of body dysmorphia, that's perfectly okay. And if it's our 12-year-old trans boy who doesn't want his female breasts to develop and just wants to have his puberty like his other boys around him, they're saying he's not allowed. And so we feel very strongly that's absolutely an equal protection violation. And notably, in the neighboring state of Montana, where a case was also filed in state court under their state constitution, a judge just today granted their preliminary injunction and talked about these equal protection issues and said they are likely to win on those equal protection issues in Montana. So that's a good sign for us moving forward, I think, too, on that argument. And then the Article 1, Section 1, this is where the North Dakota courts have found that fundamental right to parent exists. There's a fundamental right to self-identity and personal autonomy that are wrapped up in this because that's all wrapped up in your rights of enjoying and defending liberty and your right to pursue and obtain safety and happiness. We're, we're arguing that these kids have a right to identify as who they are. State has no right to prevent them from getting the care they need to be able to live in their identity and live happily and safely. So with that, I will pass it back to EMQ 
Thank you, Brittany. I appreciate both of you for being so smart and being able to walk us through all of that. For the lawyers on the call, there was a question, will gender justice be arguing that the fact that this legislation was passed in conjunction with a raft of other anti-trans laws demonstrates that the real motivation is bias rather than any concern about medical practice, thinking USDA v. Moreno. And I can answer that, yes, we are making the argument. There a substantial portion of our brief seeking the preliminary injunction goes into that legislative history, talks about some of the other laws that were passed, and also talks about just some of the bigoted statements that were being made about transgender people on the floor of the legislature that make very clear to the will make very clear to the court that while they want to say this is about protecting kids from these treatments, their words on the legislative floor show that what was really motivating this was an animus towards transgender people generally. And that also came up in the Montana case the order that I read just this afternoon, the judge there also noticed that and said, a lot of your arguments about safety are really undercut by the fact that you really seem to just not like the fact that transgender people exist and don't want them to be able to become adults who are transgender. One of the things I think that's interesting, too, that we hit on in terms of that is how the hearings were structured during the legislative session. There were lots. There's always DHS budgets, things that are looked at when you're looking at overall. How are we regulating child welfare? How are we making sure kids are safe in their homes? These bills were not paired with those types of considerations. These bills were paired with a bunch of other bills that applied to trans people. So these bills are run at the same time as parental rights bills and as sports bans, things like that. So you could really see the connective thread for the people who were scheduling the public comment and the hearings on these things was, what are we going to do with trans people? Not, this is a this is an issue of regulation of safe medical care for youth and therefore should be considered in that space, if that makes sense. And so that's something we also hit on is when you look at how things were structured, they were structured so as to conflate all of these laws to say and really feed into that moral panic sense of this is something that is dangerous that we don't know about, that kids don't have the capacity to understand, and therefore we have to take these decisions away from kids, away from their parents, and away from their doctors. But at the same time, you saw then that same fear-mongering carry over to, oh, and by the way, better make sure they can't use bathrooms that that in DV shell, all these different things that came up. So that's definitely something that is, I think, helpfully to our case, very apparent in lots of ways and how it was talked about, but also how the legislative hearings were scheduled. That's I'm really glad you mentioned that. I had the dishonor of listening to some of the legislative debates in order to know what was said. You're right. There was a strong animus. There was another question. Are these kids seeking to acquire the reputation of being insert whatever gender they identify with? I'm not sure if I fully understand that question. I guess to, to the degree they're seeking to just be seen our two trans boys just want to be boys like, like they are. And our transgender girl just wants to be a teen girl like she is. And so I, I think they generally just want to be kids and want to be happy in their body. Oh, and we do stuff wrong constitutional provision that you put up, but. Oh, about reputation. Okay. Yeah. 
And I would say, too, one of the things that the court has to approve ultimately is uh, people proceeding anonymously. The general rule is that parties to lawsuits can be publicly identified, right? And so there are standards by which we compare, we look at a request to be anonymous. And one of the one of the aspects of those cases where people have requested anonymity in other states comes up that absent this relief, they are losing part of the ultimate case, which justifies, right, then proceeding anonymously. What that means is part of what they're seeking here is the ability to privately make medical decisions just like everybody else. And so in order to enforce their ability to decide down the road if they want to publicly identify as a trans woman or if they want to publicly identify as a woman. Or, and that's not to say that those two things aren't, are, are different, but that if they, whether or not they want to identify that there has been a difference between their sexes assigned at birth and their gender or not is something that they should not have to decide at 12 years old, right? And so if they're publicly identified as a plaintiff, they lose that ability to ever pull that information back off the internet that says, I went in and requested that I have access to gender-affirming care. So I would say in that vein, yes, I think part of what our clients are looking for is the ability to make those decisions. And absent the protection of proceeding anonymously, they lose the ability to privately make medical decisions for themselves and to make decisions for how they're going to interact with the world as they move forward. That's, I really appreciate you explaining that. There's a great question here. And I feel like, Brittany, this might go to you first, but Christina, feel free to jump in. In states where gender-affirming care ban, um, bans have been challenged in court and they haven't been successful, what have been the main legal barriers that have stopped those cases from proceeding or been the reason they are not successful? Yeah, so that's a great question. And actually, so far, at every trial court level, in every state that's had this, these cases, there has been an injunction granted, even in Texas, Alabama, Kentucky, Tennessee. They've all been granted by the trial. Um, now, there have been a couple of decisions out of the Sixth Circuit down south that have suggested that where the appellate court overturned the injunction that was granted by the trial court, and in those cases, there seemed to be a real misunderstanding of food and drug law, which I luckily took 20 years ago in law school and somehow remembered enough about it to understand that when I read this argument in the Sixth Circuit opinion, I was like, that's not how the Food and Drug Act works. So they were they actually made the argument that since puberty blockers and hormone therapy are not FDA approved specifically for gender affirming care, while they are FDA approved, that meant somehow that the FDA had not blessed their usage for these other purposes. But that's just a misunderstanding of food and drug law. FDA does not prohibit off-label uses of drugs and in fact encourages it. Once a drug has been deemed safe to be on the market, they want doctors to figure out other uses that can make those, they can actually make those medications useful. And so it, it just stems from a, I don't know if they just don't understand the Food and Drug Act 
or they intentionally misrepresented it. I can't get into their motive, but I, I can say they just frankly got it wrong and seemed to think that a lack of FDA approval meant that these aren't safe treatments when there are now decades of research showing that this is safe. And there's the World Professional Association of Transgender Health and the Endocrine Society have all spent tons of time and years fine-tuning the diagnosis, fine-tuning the standards of care. And, and so they just missed the boat on that. Now, the Texas state court issued their injunction that ended up being overruled by the Texas Supreme Court, which I, although I can't say what the motive was there because they didn't issue an opinion at all, they just issued an order saying it was overturned, providing no legal analysis as to why, which leads me to believe that most likely was just a political maneuver. And then there was also the Sixth Circuit, correct? Uh, yeah, that's that the one the, I was talking about. That's the one you Eleventh Circuit as well. Oh, yeah. And the Eleventh Circuit cited the Sixth Circuit on the same drug argument that was made in the Sixth Circuit. Didn't the Sixth Circuit also argue that what they did for marriage equality, they were like banning same-sex marriage isn't discriminatory because everybody has the opportunity to enter into a heterosexual marriage. And they said it's not discriminatory to ban gender from care for trans kids because a, sister, a, a person assigned bail at birth only needs estrogen to transition, but, and you also ban testosterone for somebody assigned female at birth. And so it's equal. I, I feel like that was some of the reasoning that was also used in that Sixth Circuit court as well. That, that's how they tried to get around the equal protection argument was yeah. to say, oh, it's keeping boys and girls equally from accessing these transition care, which doesn't jibe even with Supreme Court of the United States law, but they really took a different approach they also did cite the Dobbs opinion and that construed it as a very narrow parental right. Is there a history anywhere in the country of parents having a right to access gender affirming care for their kids rather than do parents have a right to control the health care of their kids? So that's where that narrow rights argument also comes at. And and one thing I think that's important to touch on here too. So I was the I was lobbying. I, I worked with other lobbyists and other organizations, but I lobbied on behalf of the North Dakota Human Rights Coalition and several other organizations. And gender justice was part of this kind of collective effort to fight against these bills at the legislative level. And I think that um, what's really important to note is the dramatic difference these questions take once they're subjected to legal briefing, legal analysis, and factual examination. Because at the legislative level, unfortunately, people can say things like, this is necessary because kids don't have the ability to understand this. It's dangerous. They're making life-altering decisions and they don't mature enough to do it. But you start holding up. So because it's like there's, number one, this overwhelming overrepresentation of people who tend to agree with that position in the moment, versus what I think maybe is actually represented out in the general public in North Dakota, you get this kind of mob mentality of, yes, this is dangerous. This is, we're all buying into this. We're all going into this. But when you stop then, and it was really frustrating for me as an attorney to sit and watch this and go, there are no facts to back up what you're saying right now. You're just saying something that means nothing. And it's, 
it, we obviously are at the beginning of this and we want to win. It's also gratifying to just start having the conversation rooted in facts. And the fact of the matter is, and Brittany says these laws, all of them have been enjoined at the district court level. It's because there are not facts that support limiting this treatment for trans youth. On the contrary, there are studies coming out that show that gender affirming care for kids that are experiencing gender dysphoria reduces depression by 60%, reduces suicide attempts by 73%. And so when you look at one of the doctors, Dr. Dahl, who practices with Dr. Casas, spoke at our press conference and said, you'd think that if you found something that was that effective in reducing depression and suicidal ideation in a group of kids, that would be celebrated, not outlawed. And so again, it's really helpful to, or really, I think as an attorney, somewhat heartening to start turning into, all right, now you're going to have to to bring evidence that supports these blanket conclusory statements that you're making. And I see we've got a couple very yay facts, medical facts, mental health facts, right? And, and there's lots of other things we could talk about. The fact that all over the legislative session, these same people that were arguing against trans rights were arguing for their rights as parents to do whatever they thought was right. And no seeming recognition of the fact that it's okay for them to decide what they want to do, but then they're going to, speaking of discrimination, discriminate against parents of trans kids doing what they believe is right for their children. But Bree asks an important question, Erin, which is, what can people do to help us? Yes. I. What can we do to help support gender justice's efforts? I'm so glad you asked that, Bree. Thank you so much. So something I really want to talk about is that as we have done this work to expand into bring the whole model into North Dakota and South Dakota, we have done listening sessions, met with advocates, met with people who are doing the work on the ground to find out how can we move into this work together and not just run in and be like, oh, we solved it, we fixed it. One thing we heard loud and clear when we met in North Dakota was that folks have experienced a lot of parachuting in and parachuting out and largely around election cycles, particularly when Heidi Heitkamp was a senator from North Dakota and when maybe North Dakota was a little bit more purple. And so there were resources sent there. And so one of the things that we are incredibly committed to is making sure that this work that we are doing, this impact litigation, this public education, narrative change alongside movement partners, that this is sustainable, that we are committed to North Dakota and South Dakota long-term, and we need folks to be committed with us. We're actually right now working to raise $35,000 to staff up in North and South Dakota and really make sure that we can bring not just the full force in our brains, but actual people into this work in North Dakota and South Dakota. And absolutely a gift to gender justice would be super helpful, a monthly gift, because having monthly sustaining donors helps us like prove that we are sustainable to do this in North and South Dakota. So that is, and Michelle put the link in there right now, but not only supporting gender justice with your money, but also with your time, signing up for our email list and making sure that um, we are able to spread the information, spread the message and continue to expand our reach. I always say this, judges are people too, right? They don't make decisions in vacuums. And so as we work to change the conversation and change public understanding, particularly with these amazing families who are part of this litigation and the donors who've been so brave to step forward and really put face to the harm that is being caused, people behind these folks is so important. So in addition to money, yes, money is going to be very important. Financial gifts are going to be very important. But narrative change work takes time and dedication. So Stacy put the link to stay signed up for our emails. 
the North Dakota legislature is not back in session until 2025. And so there is time for folks to do work um, and work with movement partners on the ground there to change hearts and minds, change conversations, and um, hopefully win some lawsuits. So we that is great, Dina. Well, we just had so much information to share. And so we obviously can't touch on anything. And my, anyone who knows me knows my brain's flopping around right up 80 things I want to say. But keep in mind, this is a bit of a different approach in that there certainly are lots of wonderful organizations, the Center for Reproductive Rights, ECLU of North Dakota, that have filed lawsuits that seek to secure rights. Gender justice is part is is in communication and working collaboratively with those organizations. So I want to be really clear that our aim is to amplify what's going on, not to compete with or, and that's the reality. We've got to work together because we are so outnumbered um, in so many ways. But I think one of the things that is really important to think about is as much as the political environment in North Dakota can feel totally intractable, I do not believe, I have lived here, I've been back in North Dakota since 2009. I really do not believe that our legal arguments face those same uphill battles that I could be wrong. That doesn't mean we're going to win everything we try to win, but we had way more success so far in challenging the abortion law than I think a lot of people think that we could have had. And there's also something to, to really think about in terms of the national conversation. There are organizations and funders that regularly write off states like North Dakota. And so when we come in and say, no, you know what? Gender justice is a well-established, powerful, really great organization that's investing here. And so should you, that matters. And so we're not, that's something that as an organization, we're part of those conversations nationally too, which is North Dakota has two senators, just like Texas, just like California, right? And so there's all of these impacts nationally, and there's no doubt this is a national issue. This is the boogeyman of our time right now, where people are trying to alienate and exploit people's identities in order to people that they need to contract in and keep things from changing and being confusing and whatever. And that's an effective motivator for a lot of people. But I think we can work together in this state and start gaining some momentum in the court system and work to organize and work to collaborate. And one of the things that we used in the session a lot and that we've talked about using now is this is our home too, right? And this isn't only home to one type of person who has one type of belief system. And so I am so excited to be on the gender justice team as a North Dakotan to do this work. It's just really an incredible opportunity. And I'm so excited. And the folks at Gender Justice have commented over and over again how wonderful our organizational partners have been already. And so we thank you for that. We thank everyone for attending. And I'll turn it back to Erin. You did a great job wrapping it up. I love to end a webinar on time. So we are closing in on the final 30 seconds. Thank you all so much for coming this evening. Thank you for supporting Gender Justice. Thank you to our partners in North Dakota. Thank you to our plaintiffs. Thank you to our attorneys. And thank you to the folks who really make sure that Gender Justice can continue to do this incredibly crucial, important work. I will end by saying this. We know that democracy really is at stake and they are attacking democracy through trans people, particularly trans youth and through abortion. And so we work in both of those areas. We really see our work as being at the core of our democracy and you're helping us sustain that work and really fight for our country. And we thank you for that. So enjoy your evening wherever you may be and we will see you all soon. Bye-bye. 
Thanks for tuning in to the Gender Justice Brief. This show is produced by Gunter Janel and Audra Griegas. To keep up with our work in real time, be sure to check out the show notes for where to find us on the web, social media, and to sign up for text updates. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and share to help us spread our message. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.